Welcome, welcome, welcome to the first episode of the Language Hacking Podcast, where we share the everyday stories from language learners around the world. My name is Benny Lewis from Fluent in Three Months, and I've been fascinated by language learning for pretty much my whole adult life. And over the past few years, I've learned a lot of different languages. So I'm really excited to launch this new podcast, because together with my co-host, Shannon Kennedy, I want to show what language learning is really like. And, well, it's not what most people imagine. For this first episode, we're joined by my very good friend, Scott Young. Scott is the author of Ultra Learning, a book that's received hundreds of positive reviews, where Scott shares the most effective ways to learn new skills fast. Scott is well known for his intensive learning projects, including learning four languages in just one year. As well as being an author and an avid learner, he also teaches students his learning strategies in his rapid learner programs. In this episode, Scott shares the exact methods he used to learn four languages in one year and gives some incredible insights into how to learn a language quickly. You can find all resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes at languagehacking.com. So, let's dive right into this fascinating conversation with Scott Young. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hey there, Scott. Oh, it's great to be here, Benny. So for people who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what kind of things you do online that people know you for? Sure. So I have a blog, uh, scotthyoung.com, which I've been writing for over 14 years now. And we go way back, uh, probably about a decade now that we've known each other. And the the thing I'm kind of known for is doing sort of these intense learning projects, uh, quite similar to the kinds of projects that Benny has done in some ways, although not exclusive to language learning. I did uh, one project, the MIT Challenge, which was to learn four years of MIT's computer science program in 12 months. Uh, enough to pass the final exams and do the programming projects. I did another project very similar to a Benny Lewis fluent three months type project with uh, my good friend that where we went to four countries in one year to learn four different languages, Spanish in Spain, Portuguese in Brazil, Mandarin in China, and Korean in South Korea. And uh, the sort of crux of that project is that we had committed to not speaking English for the entire year. So that was sort of the method that we were using, heavily inspired by Benny, of course. And I've also done projects learning quantum mechanics and portrait drawing and things like that. And so learning has been a major focus of my blog, but I also write about habits, self-improvement, and just ideas about life in general. You have a book that came out fairly recently called Ultra Learning. Can you kind of explain what ultra learning is? Yeah. So the idea behind ultra learning is that I wanted to take a look at people like Benny, who I call ultra learners or people who take on these really aggressive self-directed learning challenges. And so Benny was one of the first people that I met that I can genuinely say is an ultra learner that does these things. But I found that there's actually people in lots of different domains. So people who are ultra learners for public speaking or for making video games or for getting really good at Jeopardy, for instance. And the whole idea was to look at for people who really take the art of learning seriously, that they really want to do it and be masters at it. uh, What do they do differently and how do they get good at hard skills? And so the book was sort of an exploration of a lot of their stories, but also I 
did a ton of research into what science has to say about what are the effective ways to learn. And a lot of that was surprising. I think it's a lot of it would go contrary to how a lot of students sort of, you know, mosey through their studies in school, doing things they don't even realize are quite ineffective. You had mentioned that you did a project where you went a year without English. I have a bunch of questions about this project. My first one is why did you choose the languages that you chose? Yeah, so this was actually, I, I went with a friend, so it wasn't just me who did this project, I went with a good friend, uh, Vat Jaswell, we were roommates at the time, he was going to go do his master's, uh, and he was going to take a gap year, and so we we're like, oh, let's travel together and, and do this kind of crazy project over many, many conversations, and so the decision about which countries we went to was like, it, it had all these different criteria, and it was a lot of like, okay, maybe this, maybe that, and so I think the idea is that we wanted it to be a world trip. So we wanted it to kind of cover more places. So we did go to three continents, which I think was like pretty good. We each had our own picks of which languages we really wanted to learn. I really wanted to learn Chinese. He really wanted to learn Korean. We both were interested in learning Spanish. Um, I think we ended up picking Portuguese in Brazil because uh, we wanted to go to South America. Uh, but we were also at some point considering maybe like learning German and then going South America to learn Spanish. And so there's a lot of different variants of this plan when it was in the processing stage. And um, uh, before I let Shannon go on with her questions, I think um, one thing that uh, like I, I know this project very intimately because, of course, <laughs> when you started in Spain, yeah. you started in Valencia, where I happened to be living. And we hung out yeah. a lot and we only spoke Spanish the whole time. But what I, um, my question yeah, your is... Your face is in the background of our videos and a lot of the, like, uh, us talking is just people in the comments like, is that Betty Lewis in the, yeah, in the background? Exactly. <laughs> You're just there, no comment in the background. Yeah, and I, and I can confirm for people who, who are listening yeah. that even though uh, Scott's Canadian and I'm Irish, we exclusively spoke Spanish for the entire three months. Yeah. And I, I definitely wanted to make sure I wasn't getting in the way of his project. You served as my translator in some instances with people That's who right. didn't speak uh, <laughs> Spanish. You would be relaying my words in English to other people in conversation. So I was, I was kind of, in Spain, we were like extremely strict with the rule because we were just starting the project and, you know, weren't really sure how, uh, how difficult it was going to be. So we were being very, very strict about it. And uh, Benny was there for that. We were you know, only speaking in Spanish with each other. I was only speaking in Spanish with that. Anyone we were meeting, meeting, we were only speaking in Spanish, even though that kind of had sort of hilarious consequences, at least in the first couple of weeks. Yeah. So um, other than everything that you personally implemented, I'm actually really curious to hear uh, since this this wasn't the first language that you'd learned and yeah. you um, you had experience with your with your blog and from your own personal projects for doing intensive learning, but that mm. didn't. And a big part yeah. of this project was that you were actually also um, helping Vat with his own first attempt at ultra learning and his first attempt at learning foreign languages. So other than your own experience, how did you feel uh, that did and what do you think he was taking out of the experience and how was it unexpected for him? Yeah, so this is a really interesting point because when we were discussing this project, I had already had these kinds of, like I had done my MIT challenge project already. I had spent a year in France. That was sort of how we first got acquainted where I kind of used a not so effective way of learning French. It wasn't this total immersion approach I was using in Spain. So I had this background experience of like, yeah, I think this could work. Maybe I should try it, this kind of thing. And it was only, um, it was only just sort of talking to him that I was trying to convince him to do this, but he certainly wasn't very confident about it. Like he was just very blunt with me. He's like, yeah, man, I don't know whether I can do this. Like we might go here and I'll just 
fail. And, and I was like, you know what? I think you'll do okay. And, but I also don't know for sure whether this is going to work. Like we're planning this year long project ahead of time, but this could just totally blow up in our faces and just be like, we're terrible. And we had to give it up because we have to speak in English because it's unbearable or something like that. So there was a real element of risk in, in kind of embarking on the project. And I was really impressed not only with how well that uh, took to the challenge, but how well it worked just on this very basic principle that it wasn't the case that he needed to have every single other little parameter of learning the language perfectly and have all this, you know, decades of experience with like cognitive science and how to learn languages. It was just a very simple approach of getting out there, having conversations with people and this rule, which sort of structured the activity. So we weren't constantly flipping back to English because it was easier um, that he learned Spanish quite well. And I would say that he learned it quite well, including the fact that he didn't really want to study very much. Like I was kind of nagging him a little bit. I was like, man, you know, if we're, we're taking this seriously, like we're, we're making videos about this. Do you want to like maybe spend a little bit of time with the grammar book, you know, just like an hour a day. Now nah, I don't really want to do that. So I remember having a conversation with him about a month in, and this is already like, he's made friends, he's interacting with people, he's living in the language, but he doesn't know how to conjugate verbs. So he was just saying, yo, tener, like everything was just like tener. It wasn't like tengo, tienes, like he didn't, he didn't do any of that. He didn't do have any of that in his sort of repertoire. And uh, so I remember having dinner with him one day and I was like, okay, this is embarrassing. You've been doing this for a month. You need to learn how to conjugate verbs. And so I gave him just sort of the basics and, and he started picking it up. But to me, it was just sort of telling that like how many language instructors, how many people who tell you how to learn a language would expect that you could kind of functionally get so far not knowing how to conjugate verbs. That's like day one of a Spanish class that you're learning, yo tengo, yo, you know, like you're learning those basic things right off the beginning. So I think it just is telling as well how important actually communicating, actually having conversations, really all the things that you preach are to learning a language and maybe how secondary a lot of the stuff that language curricula typically put in the forefront are. So you've hinted a little bit about some of the things that you did during this project to be able to function completely in these languages. But I was wondering if you could yeah. go a little bit more in depth into exactly what you did to kind of gain that sort of proficiency in the language so quickly. Sure. So I'll talk about, uh, in this case, Spanish, although the process varied a little bit from different countries, uh, I think it'll be easier to just use that as a concrete example. So before we went, we ended up using Pimsleur as our sort of uh, starting point in uh, when we were still in Canada. So we did, I think, about 50 hours of total Spanish instruction each with Pimsleur. And I'm not going to say that Pimsleur is necessarily the best tool. I know there's a lot of different opinions on it. But one thing I did like about Pimsleur is it gives you a few phrases that you've memorized. So I, I definitely don't think it's the way to become fluent in a language. But having a few phrases memorized is quite useful if you need to go start speaking to people. Like if you have to just sort of open up the first page, you open the book with a conversation with someone, that's going to be quite difficult. Whereas if it's like, okay, I know how to say eight or nine simple things that I can use as the sort of starting off point, then that works pretty well. And so we did do that. Once we were in the country, the main goal was how can we facilitate having conversations with people? And so this happened in a couple ways. The sort of basis point was we, we found a tutor 
it was actually in the city and we, we had about maybe an hour of tutoring every day. And that was a really good opportunity to have longer conversations, to have a, someone who is knowledgeable, who could explain why something was a certain way. Or if we said, you know, well, like, how do you say this? And then they could like, we could jump into kind of a lesson point. Um, so that was useful. And uh, I also did a little bit more kind of grammar study and, and stuff at home, but I don't think that was essential to, to the proficiency aspect. I think it was mostly the interaction. And then, you know, Benny was really helpful. We were able to meet a couple of people through him. I remember we went to a, an Erasmus party, like kind of the first weekend we were there. And we just met a lot of people through that party who became our friends. And so the real way we were getting proficiency was like, hey, we're all going to the beach. You want to come to the beach with us? And, you know, you're just hanging out with people and chatting. And so Spain was, I think, the clearest example of this learning through actual social situations. And it was sort of surprising to us because the assumption we would have had is that, well, you're not going to be able to have those natural social interactions until you're, you know, two, three months in. We were worried about that, that that might happen when we went to these countries. And so the fact that they were happening, admittedly with this 50 hours of practice, they were happening the first night, like the first weekend was, uh, was something surprising that you could, you could still have these kind of interactions with people, even though your proficiency at that point is quite, quite low. Your Spanish project would have been, um, quite successful, I think, um, in terms of the level, like I, I thought both of you did a spectacular job in terms of where you reached after that time. Um, but you went on to do the other languages and I'm curious, what, uh, challenges did you face in those other languages and would there be anything that you may have you may do differently if you were to do them again yeah so I'll explain I'll just sort of briefly summarize each because each country was very unique in terms of the challenges it had so I don't want to ge- over generalize and say this is how it works in all cases because even within our year doing them back to back they were quite different so Portuguese uh, had the advantage of being very similar to Spanish so we picked up the basics really quickly because of that The downside is, is that where we chose to live in Brazil had a lot of tourists. And so it was harder to establish those longer term friendships, which we felt were important when we were in Valencia. Um, Additionally, a lot of the people we were meeting were from Argentina and Paraguay and Uruguay. And so we didn't, we did have this no English rule, but we didn't have a no Spanish rule if the only language they speak is Spanish. So our Spanish got a bit better in that time period, but I think it also came at a little bit of an expense of our Portuguese. So I felt like we were able to have conversations in Portuguese at the end, but it didn't have the same, in my opinion, the same unambiguous success that our our project in Spain did because there were definitely some words and situations where our understanding was a bit more basic. Brazil also had some other challenges. We didn't plan much before we went there. So we were actually kind of almost homeless for like the first two weeks because we didn't have a place to stay. And so we were like, you know, getting the phrase book and learning like, uh, it's to say like, like I'm looking for a place for two months and then just going around the town that we were living in and just like knocking on people's doors and asking this question, them being like, you're crazy. This is holiday season. Like, what are you trying to do getting an apartment for two months now? And so dealing with these kinds of challenges made the, the trip kind of exciting, but they definitely, you know, took some of the steam away from the overall language learning. Um, China, and Korea were quite different. And I know Benny has his own thoughts on this, but my feeling was that learning Asian languages had a very different feel from learning the European languages just because it's harder to fake it. (laughs) You can kind of fake speaking Spanish or French in some ways because you have so many cognates and loan words 
that people can get the gist of what you're saying, even if you haven't learned all the words you're saying, because they're usually similar. Whereas in Chinese, I mean, every word you're starting from scratch. So you're really like, you, you kind of, every single thing that you can say in the language you've really earned because you, you didn't get any of it for free. And so uh, I found that for that language, it was a lot more studying. So I did spend a lot more time studying at home and, and really, really doing the kind of things that we're talking about academically with the language. Now, that being said, we also did the same approach we did for socializing. So one of the big things I did in the beginning was finding tutors in those countries and being like, hey, my goal here is to make friends for this purpose of learning this language. Can you introduce me to people? And that was how I built the social circle in Chinese and, and how I really felt like that project was successful in the end. And then Korean, we kind of did the same approach. Um, but I think Korean was a less successful project because it was the fourth in a row and we were getting kind of burned out. And so the sort of restarting process of like back to zero for Korean, which is also a very hard language um, after you've already been doing this for nine months and you're kind of burnt out meant that like we got to a, a kind of a lower intermediate level with Korean. So we could, you know, chit chat, but it definitely didn't, it didn't feel like our other projects. I think just because we were held back in a lot of ways by not being willing to just like totally obsess over it the way we had with the first three. I feel like in a way, this project was a little bit of a social experiment because you were saying like if you could live and function and socialize in these languages. So for languages yeah. like Korean and Chinese that have a completely different writing system and other things that you need to take into consideration, how did you approach that? Was it something you even mm -hmm. considered and worked on or did you focus more on the communicative approach? So uh, the communication was definitely central in both those languages. And I, I hesitate to be too absolutist about this, but I kind of think that's the right way to learn any language. Maybe the exception of like dead languages, like you're learning ancient Greek just to read Aristotle or something. Like if you're learning a language, um, even if your goal is to be able to read books with it, I think it usually starts to build off of communication because that's the more natural uh, approach. Um, in Chinese, I did make an effort to learn uh, characters. And this wasn't really because writing was a goal, but I did find that uh, even though it was extra work, I found that they created a scaffolding for learning words and conversations. And that was a big difference between my approach and VATS. That didn't learn any characters. And although that's less work because you don't have to learn this extra thing, it also hindered him a little bit in acquiring things from conversations because, you know, there's... The, the, there's so many different, like in the beginning in Chinese, the tones separate a lot of different characters out, but you can't really hear the difference in the tones. And so when people are teaching you new words, you often learn them in the wrong way because it's not clear to you, you know, this, you know, Zhong or something like, you don't know which Zhong it is. Like it could be some other one and you don't know how to sort of piece it together. So that would often be, um, I, I did find it useful to learn those characters, even just for the spoken Chinese, just because when you learn a new word, someone can tell you, oh, it's this from this and this from that. And then that just becomes a mnemonic to store it. But at the same time, I have talked to a lot of people that have taken the like purely learning it through speaking approach. And so I think it just depends on your kind of um, your style and how you want to do it. So learning to read was important. Uh, I, I, for, for me in Chinese after I came back, but definitely when we were there, it was more focused on speaking and conversations. And with your Chinese, like even after the year of no English, um, one thing that I, I know from, of course, following you, keeping in touch, is you went back to China and you actually gave presentations 
in Mandarin, or you, you gave speeches in Mandarin. Yeah. And this this is um, like very different to generally what I tend to talk about is getting into that conversational level. And I've, I've reached mastery in a couple of my languages, but even if I can talk about technical subjects, it's still something I'm actually aspiring to do myself, to be able to talk on stage and to present in my um, in my foreign languages. So I'm really curious to hear what kind of prep did you do because uh, you you had a good level of Mandarin, but of course there was there's always room for improvement. So what did you do to reach that stage that you could start talk on stage in the language? Yeah, so that's real. That's actually a really funny story because this is what this is how it happened. So I I went to China. I spent uh, the total time in China was closer to four months, and I felt like I got to a decent level after. For anyone who's studying Mandarin, I, I passed the HSK four exam. I did that near the end of the stay. So that gives sort of a rough approximation. Some people relate it to a B2. It's probably less than a B2 uh, in, in a lot of ways, but you know that's sort of the ranking system that they use there. And um, after I came back, I was eager to push my Mandarin further. And so I, I kind of studied it more casually uh, for a couple of years after. And then I had the opportunity to go back to China and I went for a trip. And my goal was just like, I kind of want to go back there just to just have fun. And I was going to Beijing and my, uh, I have a book that's published there. And my publisher was like, great, you're coming to Beijing. Like we can do some press with you for this book. And I was like, okay, all right, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. And when I went to meet with the publisher, I made a decision that I was going to speak in Mandarin to them just because I kind of wanted to, to push that and do that. I wasn't really committing in my mind at that moment that like, I'm going to speak in Mandarin for the rest of the trip, but just, I wanted to, to do this. I didn't want to just default to English, even though with the publisher, the whole time I'd been emailing them in English and this kind of thing. So I started speaking to them in Mandarin and it was like a light bulb flipped and every single person from that point forward spoke to me in Mandarin. Like there's a lot of people I think in, in China in particular who have a decent uh, grasp of English as it is written and as it is spoken to them, but they don't feel confident speaking. So even people who, you know, probably have better English than my Mandarin felt more comfortable speaking to me in Mandarin and listening to me in Mandarin and stuff. And uh, they organized things and it was sort of like, they kind of took the approach that, oh, he can speak Chinese, so let's just throw him in the deep end. So I actually, they, they booked out this coffee place and I remember going there and they had even like a small, almost little press junket where I'm sitting at the front and there's a bunch of different like, I don't know, reporters or people in media outlets sitting in chairs and they're all just asking me questions and I'm trying to answer them in Chinese and they're like doing some sort of um, kind of live conversation and they're kind of like, okay, Scott, go give like an introduction to yourself on the stage, in the stage in Chinese. And so I'm just sort of like, all right, I guess I'm doing this right now. And I did it. And so definitely there were some wobbly parts. Um, I remember watching a video where I was talking to a reporter and I was trying to talk about the importance of sleep for learning. He was just asking me this and this was just sort of the response I had. And you can say sleep as a noun in Chinese is uh, shui mian. Uh, so that's a fourth tone and then a second tone. And it's not a super common word, um, but it means sleep as like if we were talking about sleep as a noun, like how sleep is important or something. And uh, he, I, I didn't use those tones right. I screwed them up and I said shui mian, which uh, is a third tone, fourth tone, which means water surface. And so when the guy published the little video of me in Chinese, it's like Scott Young talking about the importance, and this is in Chinese characters, in quotes, water surface to you studying. <laughs> and I'm just sort of like, oh my God. But but it was it was fun, but it was still possible. Like, it, you know, they could make fun of me a little bit for having broken Chinese, but we still communicated, which I think is the real goal. So even if it can be a little bit embarrassing to make mistakes. 
doing an intensive project like this where you're basically functioning in languages beyond like that aren't your native language and trying mm-hmm. to keep everything in that language naturally when you encounter certain people they probably tried to switch back to English thinking that they were helping you or making things easier for you so how did you kind of deal with situations like that and keep the conversation in that language. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is that I was really worried about that happening on the trip and it happened way less than I thought it would. Um, Part of that, I think, is just that there is a home country advantage so that if you start speaking Spanish in Spain, there is a presumption of Spanish so that even if your Spanish isn't very good, people tend to speak to you in Spanish. Uh, in a way that like if I went to a Mexican restaurant here in Canada, like even if my Spanish was fluent, it's weird for a non-Spanish person to start speaking to the staff in Spanish. And so there's some pushback from that sometimes. And I have seen that. I've seen that side by side where I right after I had this whole situation where I'm in China and I'm giving a press tour, I go to a Chinese restaurant and I speak in Chinese to people. And sometimes they'll just respond back in English because they're it's just weird for them to talk to a, a Westerner in in um in Chinese. And so I think there is some of that. And so if you are feeling that it could be related to it, but for me, the, the real solution in the rare circumstances when we were traveling, where we did encounter it was to very early on memorize a phrase that says, I have a project to just speak X, whatever the language you're learning, uh, you know, to just speak this in order to learn the language. And it was like a keyword. As soon as you said it to people, their attitude immediately flipped that they're like, Oh, I get what you're doing. And I understand why you're doing it. Because by saying that you're not trying to give the impression that you're arrogant enough to assume that your level of their language is better than their level of English. And so that's why you're forcing the conversation It's because you're learning. And I think if you say that people appreciate it. And so there were a couple people who would resist even that, but they tended to be people who their level of the language wasn't as good either. And and sometimes you'd have a few dueling situations. So I remember in Brazil, there was someone who I, there were some people who definitely wanted to practice their English. And so they were kind of testing me, but I just sort of settled into, they would say some things in English to me and I'd say some things in Portuguese to them. And, you know, you just don't back down and and it it works pretty well. But I think this fear that people have that if they speak, that they're going to get ridiculed, that they're going to get embarrassed. I think you just have to rephrase it. You just have to say, you know what, I'm learning this language and, and, and then it just becomes a compliment to that person that you care enough to learn their language and not kind of a statement of like, oh, look at me, I'm speaking your language, I'm so good at it, you know, which it, sometimes people are worried it comes across. And um, when it comes to the, the whole project of the year without English, the prevailing theme was, of course, that you would travel to the country. And I know that um, even before the current um, international situation, where for we don't know how long travel is going to be difficult for people, even before that, it wasn't practical for most people to be able to take a year because, like yourself, I work online, so it's realistic for, for people like us to do that. But uh, for people who just cannot, under any circumstances, travel, whether that's just because um, the country is in, on lockdown or something, or that they have um, other responsibilities that prevent them to, from doing so, if somebody was just uh, stuck at home and wanted to have a similar project to what you did, what recommendations would you give to them? So I do think that there are advantages to traveling. And I think one of the big advantages is just you're constantly reminded of this goal that you have. Every time you leave the house, you're like, oh yeah, that's why I'm trying to learn this language so I can talk to these people. So I don't want to say that traveling is bad, but I also think in terms of the actual mechanism of what's driving your learning, being in the country is not super important. Um, I think it's good for motivation. Don't get me wrong, but 
I think it's a mistake to assume just the fact that you are in the country is the thing that's making you learn the language is 100% false. Because I have met many, many, many expats who have lived in countries for literally decades that can't string together a basic sentence in the language. So if you ask yourself, how is that possible? It is possible and it is the default, I would say. You know, I, I met people who were living in China for 20 plus years, 20 plus years in a country where, you know, maybe only 1% of the population is comfortable enough to speak to you in English. Um, and yet they don't, they, you know, they can barely stutter out a ni hao. So I think uh, the idea that living in the country is the keystone to learning a language is false. That being said, I think the immersive process of having to use the language to communicate is really important. And so it's funny that you talk about this whole travel, making it harder to do what I'm talking about, because um, I'm actually uh, just about to embark on another short little project for language learning, but it's stuck at home. And in this case, my motivation is that my wife is uh, from born in Macedonia, or I guess North Macedonia is the name of the country now. And she speaks Macedonian. She's also bilingual in English. She came here when she was 14. And we've been together for a while. And now we have a new son. And I was thinking, you know, this is a good opportunity to really learn that language because we're also a little bit socially isolated from some other people who might be pushing us into speaking English. So let's try to, you know, have this immersive environment at home. So I, I haven't started the project yet. And so I can't really tell you exactly how it's going to go. But I, I think it's important to note that when we were doing the project in Spain in Spanish, a lot of the Spanish that we learned came from that and I just having hours and hours of conversation with each other. So even the idea that you need to have a lot of native speakers around you constantly is less important because yes, you do need the native speakers to maybe correct your mistakes, but for every correct sort of say this word in this situation, you probably have to practice it like 30 or 50 times in order for it to really be part of your fluent command of the language. And so, yeah, you can have a tutoring session where you learn that phrase and then you can have a bunch of conversations with someone who's a non-native speaker where you practice it another hundred times. And so for a lot of people, I think they could do some version of the no English rule in their own life. And whether that's with a roommate, with a spouse, with your family, it could be with um, a certain friend that you want to have as a language partner. It could be in some limited context. So, you know, every day you're going to have italki tutoring or have a language partner. So, even though the, I think the the um, being in the country affects the motivation, I think the mechanism doesn't really change that much. So you can totally apply this to your own situation. When you were doing your year-long project, how did you maintain your motivation through it and avoid burnout? Well, I can say, first of all, I, I can't say that we avoided burnout, um, although... Uh, the burnout happened in Korea. So I think getting through three out of four countries without burning out is uh, still pretty good. <laughs> I mean, the assumption a lot of people would make is that three weeks would have been, uh, you know, waving the white flag. And so the fact that we did it for, you know, a good solid nine months before it's like, oh, all right, this is, this is getting a bit tiring, uh, I think is a change of expectations. The, the first things I would say are this. First of all, that um, the ability to actually authentically communicate with people tends to come a lot earlier than people think. And that, that ability to authentically communicate is not the same as what we typically think of as language proficiency. So probably even by the end of our stay in Spanish, if we did like a formal test that, you know, counted how many words we know or like whether we're making mistakes in grammar or, or the kind of normal things that you think of when you're measuring proficiency, there's probably a lot of gaps that we still had even after that period. But if I'm talking about it experientially, like what did it feel like to be there? 
it didn't really feel like we were doing anything at all. Like it felt like we were just on vacation by month three because we were so used to speaking Spanish. It was so habituated that, you know, even when we made mistakes or we had like words we didn't know, we were just seamlessly moving around it. And so I think if you can get to that state in a language, it's a lot easier to just live your life. And then living your life is learning the language and there's no real distinction between the two. In terms of um, the motivation and why to do this, I think that um, making it an explicit project, making it so that like we are doing this and this is the rule we're following. And then when we talk to people, we say we have a project for the next three months, we're only going to speak Spanish. That not only set the boundaries, it created constraints so that we don't just take the easy way out, especially in the beginning when that's tempting. That yes, in the first couple of weeks, there were a lot of tempting moments where it would have been a lot easier to just switch to English. But because we were able to maintain this policy, that initial bit of discipline at the beginning made it so much easier down the road. So for anyone who's contemplating a project like this, I would say that um, being really clear on what you're trying to do with people, especially with like, who am I going to speak in what language and or what situations? If that's crystal clear to everyone from day one, you're not going to encounter as much social friction. And indeed, the people around you are going to push you to speak in the language that you want to learn rather than be this obstacle that you have to overcome. Um, I've done it the other way. I did it in France where I didn't have any clear guidelines and I just tried to do it as much as I could. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's very frustrating and you actually burn yourself out more because you're constantly fighting against an environment that wants to kick you back to speaking the language that you already know really well. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, the difference between how you learn French and how you learn Spanish, would you be able to outline like what do you think jumps out to you to that compares the two? Because like you said, you lived in France, you were in the country, but you struggled to pick up the language uh, for the majority of that time. So what changed? So when I was going to France, I was really keen on learning a language. And I think it's important to emphasize this because sometimes people... Uh, they kind of find themselves in a situation where they could have learned the language, but it was never a priority for them. And so they, you know, when they don't succeed, there's a sense of maybe I just wasn't motivated enough. Right. And I want to make, I want to make that clear that the difference between France and Spain was not motivation. <laughs> That's that. It's not that I was motivated more in Spain. I was also really motivated in France. I had a different method. And so the thing that I did in France was the idea was that, well, I don't speak French very well. So I am enrolling in classes. So none, you know, I have to enroll in English classes because I can't take university classes in French. First of all, that's also false. There were lots of people who were from other European countries that took classes in French, even though they didn't speak French and they were fine. You know, maybe they got slightly worse grades, but it, it you know, it mattered to them. So that was the first mistake I made. Second mistake I made was that I made tons and tons of friends in English. And I, I don't know whether I would take the extreme sense that I took in Spain that you should never speak to anyone in English, but I think the way that you ought to approach these kinds of things is that if at all possible, you should be speaking in the language that you're speaking. And I think a stricter rule that you're only going to speak in that language probably would have been fine. Yes, I would have made different friends because a lot of the friends that I did make were, you know, people from England, for instance, who didn't speak very much French. But 
I would have made friends that I didn't make. And so maybe if I had experienced it differently, I'd be like, oh, I wouldn't have been able to make friends with so-and-so and so-and-so because they only spoke in French or they were part of a French circle. And so what I did when I was there is I just didn't have any constraints. I just said, I'm going to just try to do it as much as I can. And that sounds like a good policy. It sounds like that's the reasonable policy, right? Like it sounds like what I did in Spain is the unreasonable thing. Like the unreasonable thing is to be like, before I even get there, I'm going to decide that I'm only speaking in Spanish. Isn't that being kind of crazy, being kind of stubborn? But I think it's actually the opposite because when you have two languages and one of them is much easier for you than the other, what ends up happening is you just end up speaking the languages easier for you in all these sort of ambiguous situations. So you meet someone new and they say hello to you in English and you're just like, ah, oh, you know, it's just going to be a bit easier to speak in English. And then that person becomes your friend and you end up spending dozens of hours talking to that person and you're not practicing the language at all. And I think the difference between France and Spain wasn't even that there was a conscious method, like I chose to do X in France and I chose to do Y in Spain, but that I just didn't really think about what I was trying to do from the get-go in France. And so I think it's totally fine if language learning is not your goal to travel somewhere and not learn the language. But if you were like I was, and it was really important for me to have learned the language, I would consider doing something like this to be super clear on when you're going to be able to use the language. And even if you have to use English or some language, you know, for some part of it to be really crystal clear what that box is, because if you don't set the box, it just expands and takes over everything. And then you're only actually practicing the language like 10% of the time instead of 90% of the time. Um, Being in an immersion environment, you're obviously filtering through a lot of different information and then you're studying on your own as well. So how do you prioritize what you need to work on Mm -hmm. the most? So I think, again, this goes back to this idea of communication is that the way that a lot of people look at like studying a language academically is that you got a big list of subjects. So you've got these grammar exercises. I've got to learn, you know, masculine, feminine. I got to learn to conjugate. I've got to learn this set of words for this topic. And Um, I think if you just are engaged in real communication situations often, you don't even have to think about that. So the words you need to learn are, what do I need to do to deal with this situation right now? Like, I remember being sick with the flu in Spain and telling that you have to go get cold medicine for me. And like, you know, okay, I want you to say these words to the person so that they will give me the medicine that I want. Or to be in situations where like, I'm going to make plans with someone to go watch a movie. So I have to know how to say movie and I have to make the plans and I have to know. So I think that organic approach sort of pushes you in a lot of directions. I think it's fine to do kind of additional study, the sort of traditional way on top of that. So I did do grammar practice. When I was in China, I, tr- I learned, did tons of vocabulary acquisition that wasn't immediately necessary. And that's a little bit wasteful. Uh, but I found it helpful just because it just gave me a head start that I just had more words that I could use even if I didn't need them immediately. But I think in both those situations, whether you're doing a very minimal amount of additional studying the way that did in Spain, or you're doing a huge amount of additional study the way I did in China, they're both built on this foundation of being in real communication situations where you're constantly being told, oh, crap, I need to know what this word is and I don't know what it is. And it's funny how often words that you think are not very common, you learn really, really quickly. Like um, the word to record in Spanish, uh, grabar, that was something we learned really early on because we were filming things. And so it was always like, how do you say how to film stuff? But I mean, how often in a book does the word grabar come as like the like starting part of an early part of learning Spanish? It doesn't, it just came up in that particular situation for us. So I think having it being communication driven, being driven by the real situation is so essential because otherwise, yeah, you're often just speculating about what's important instead of it actually being from the real situation. 
And uh, you were saying that if someone was to have given you a formal exam at the end of your time in Spain, you may not have, have had have officially passed the exam, even though you your level of Spanish was uh, communicatively, it was it was uh, you were able to do so many things. Whereas you mm-hmm. did the HSK for in China, so yeah. what uh, did you have some kind of different approach involved in your Chinese specifically for that exam? Because I'm I'm interested in taking exams myself, and I'm very curious to hear how you prepare for them. So I don't I don't. First of all, I, I should clarify. I wouldn't mean to say that like, well, I wouldn't have been able to pass like an A2 exam for Spanish. I think you know I probably would have been on the cusp of a B2. The difference is just that your my abilities were more idiosyncratic than a typical academic curricula. So there were maybe things that are in the way that you normally learn the subject are kind of more basic that I hadn't acquired because it was so usage driven. Like again, this grabar being a word you don't typically learn in the beginning, but it was something that we had memorized essentially immediately when we were there because we had to use it all the time. Um, in, In China, the decision to do the HSK exam came about halfway through the project. So even though it was only a three month project, Um, I wasn't doing language exams. I didn't do one in Spain and I didn't do one in in Brazil. I mildly regret that now because I am now fully aware of how difficult it is to articulate how good we were in the language. So now I'm kind of like, I probably should have just done an exam just to give people a general sense that's a little bit more objective. But I did do it for China. And so the main difference I would say is that I wasn't my learning efforts were not studying for the HSK. It was like, I'm doing this general learning project. And at the end, it's sort of like, well, what level of HSK could I like test? And then I did a bit of, I did a bit of specific studying for the HSK just so that I could learn the format and and get more comfortable with it. And the HSK is a, is a written test primarily. So, uh, you know, I obviously had to make sure that my um, sentence comprehension of of written Chinese was up to par and that also uh, I didn't have a computer exam. I had to handwrite. So I also had to have like the very basics of handwriting, which in my case was a lot of like copying as opposed to knowing from actual memorization, but it was enough so that I could even like make something comprehensible for the for the written section at the end of it but I would say that the way I would typically approach language learning for an exam is don't worry about the exam too much from the get-go I think that that's a mistake I think it causes you to think that the goal is to get a certain grade on the exam when the goal is to do well in real situations but I think it's totally fine once you've sort of gotten a bit more comfortable to be like all right, let's get some proof that I actually have gotten this level of ability so I would totally like to do a a Spanish exam, um, you know, to try like a C1 or C2 for Spanish. Uh, I'd like to go back and do an HSK six for, for Chinese and, um, you know, maybe, maybe something similar for some of the other languages. But I think that I'm still glad the way that we approached the project was driven by real communication situations. Otherwise I think you're right. There would have been this temptation just to study for the exam and not really, you know, not really live it and not really do what actually matters. What would you say your biggest takeaways from all of the language projects you've done are? So I think my biggest takeaway, and I think this is the the part that I would say that's somewhat counterintuitive. Um, and I think this is, if you, if I was going to tell someone this, this is what I would, would, would relay to them. Uh, when I tell people that doing the no English rule, like we learned the language fairly well, people buy that because they kind of understand, oh yeah, immersion, total immersion. Yeah, that would work. Like that's sort of the attitude you talk to people and you say, oh yeah, you know, 
they're saying, oh, I'd like to learn Spanish. I'm going to go live in Colombia for a year or something. And you say, oh, you know, you should do this. And they're like, yeah, yeah I see why that would work. But uh, that sounds too hard. That sounds like too much effort. And so the thing that I want to say is that paradoxically, it's less effortful. It's less difficult in the long run to do what I did on that trip than to do the approach that you're thinking you're going to do when you go live in another country for a year. And that sounds totally crazy. It sounds crazy because obviously only speaking in that language must be way harder than doing this kind of, well, I'll do my best. And the only reason I can say that is that the thing that's difficult about speaking a language isn't speaking a language. It's dealing with the social anxiety and awkwardness of being in an ambiguous situation where you feel like you're dumb, you feel like you can't speak it, you feel like people are laughing at you. That's what's hard. Actually speaking in the language is not that hard. It's the thing that would be hard for me right now, speaking to Spanish and Benny is not actually speaking Spanish. It would be me being embarrassed about all the mistakes I'm making on a podcast. You know, that would be what's hard. And it turns out that that fear, that anxiety, that difficulty that you have, the social difficulty of using the language goes away really quickly when you do what I'm talking about. That after two weeks, you don't really even think consciously that you are speaking Spanish. It sounds weird to say that because you're still not very good at it, but it's not the main part of your mind of like, oh, I have to, I have to say this in Spanish. It's just, this is just what you're doing, the same way that I'm speaking in English right now. And so I think the, the thing that I would try to say as a selling point is that obviously everyone's situation is unique. Not everyone's gonna be able to travel and do 100% immersion. But even just being very clear on when you're going to do it, setting in those boundaries and trying to lean towards a bigger box for when you're going to use the language than a smaller box or even a smaller box for when you're going to use English is quite beneficial. Very good. And um, as we wrap it up, I do want to hear in general, what would you understand? Since this is the language hacking podcast, what would you understand as language hacking compared to different types of language learning? Yeah, so I think this goes back to my idea of ultra learning, which is people who take the idea of the learning process seriously. And so to be a language hacker, it means that you have to have in your mind some way, what is my process for learning? Um, I was having a conversation with some people about this because I think this is a sort of, you have to kind of get outside yourself to do this. And this is not trivial to do that for a lot of people, they just do things and they either work out or they don't, but they don't really ever sit down and think about what is it exactly that I'm doing and how might I be able to do that better? And I think if you can, get to that perspective where you're thinking about, well, what is my process for learning a language? You can already find tons of things that maybe you're not doing that's kind of not very efficient or not very effective. You know, they may not be the same sort of insights that I'm having right now, but it's this kind of idea that, you know, just being able to get outside yourself and say to yourself, okay, what is it that I'm actually doing to learn this language? What is my process? You can start to find all sorts of little hacks as they were for improving like, you know, oh, I seem to be forgetting a lot of the vocabulary I'm learning. Maybe there's some way I could better remember it, right? Or I seem to be, you know, struggling with my pronunciation here. Maybe I could look up how do I improve my pronunciation. And these sorts of things lead to a lot of insights that I think uh, are not, you know, you don't just flow into them automatically if you're, you know, just taking a language class or you just download a dual and go for your phone or something like that. And you mentioned earlier that one of the new projects that you're going to be working on is learning Macedonian to use it with your child. But what other projects do you have going on currently that you could share? Right. So, yeah, this project I'm planning on taking on pretty soon. So this is certainly going to be kind of uh, I'm, I'm hoping on doing it for at least a month and we'll see how it goes from there. But this is sort of a different kind of 
uh, no English rule project, a little bit more restricted, a little bit of a different flavor from what we did in the trip. Um, I also, you know, I'm always writing and I'm always thinking about things. So I, I have some other projects related to writing and related to some of my other sort of passions with, uh, with that as well that I'm working on on the blog. So anyone who follows my blog will find out about those as soon as I'm ready to announce them. And how can people find you online? Sure. So if you can go to my website uh, at scotthyoung.com, S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. I've got thousands of articles, lots of stuff on learning, on language learning, but also on general self-improvement, life ideas, things like that. And uh, if you want to check out my book, uh, Ultra Learning, it's available Amazon, wherever you get your books from. Um, you can also listen to it on Audible. So if you're not sick of listening to me chit-chat right now, you can listen to me narrate the book where I talk about not only the year without English, but of course, some of the other projects I mentioned, learning computer science, art, and uh, and also, you know, people like Benny Lewis, who are quite spectacular about learning things, and you can study their approaches as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and we'll be sure to, to share the links to all of that in the show notes. So appreciate your time, Scott, and I'll be seeing everybody in the next episode. Until then, happy language learning. Happy language learning. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you find this episode valuable, please leave us a review so we can continue to grow and spread the word about language hacking. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.